The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do say thank you for all the great things that you have done. You've blessed us immensely. With You've, you've put us here amidst all these uh, material comforts. We sit in a warm room. We sit on uncomfortable, sort of comfortable chairs. We, we enjoy one another's company. We say thank you for those things. But of course, as we have been singing and praying, we, we particularly say thank you for the gift of your son. He has saved us, a people, drawn us into his presence and has secured for us a future. Thank you. And while we look forward to that, while we know these things, we look forward to the future, we also recognize that we live in the present, and sometimes the present is confusing and hard. And so while we say thank you in faith for the present, we also perhaps have some questions about what and why and how. And so, Lord, maybe towards that end, what I ask you for now is that you would use this passage to, to orient us, to, to help us to understand to not just say thank you in faith, but to say thank you in, at rest. You have us, and you have all the world in your hands, and you're doing something. So, Lord, teach us something this morning about that, and help us to rest in your care. Open up this passage in front of us, and, and teach for your glory and for our good. So we ask, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Last week in Matthew chapter 13, we began to consider the parables of Jesus, these extended figures of speech, often with stories, not, not always, but often having stories to them that teach, but in a slightly veiled way. Veiled because of what they're for. Jesus teaches in the parables so as to sift his listeners as some of them gradually hearing him, gradually they reveal their unbelief. They get, they get turned off, they get frustrated by, by the obscure nature of the parable and they slowly drift away. But at the same time, others in faith hear him, and this is the key point from the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. They, they hear him and they are inclined towards him, inclined to work on what he's saying, mulling it over, thinking on it, and then even perhaps coming to him physically and asking him for help to understand it. They're showing that they believe that what he's saying is important and real and true and they regard it as such and then they trust it and lean into it and orient their lives and their beliefs accordingly. Like good soil in the heart. Such ones produce the spiritually fruitful lives that we all want and that in fact are required of us. That was our introduction last week, introduction to the parables. So we must be careful to hear the word of God with understanding. Okay, so I am, I do, I do hear his word, I do regard it as true, I do want to understand it more and more, I am leaning into Jesus, I am trusting what he says, I'm surrendered to him in hope-filled faith, I'm obeying and repenting as needed. But there's a problem. Things aren't seeming to work out like I expected them to. 
in, in general or specifically perhaps in this one circumstance right there, think, things are still pretty hard and in fact maybe even painful, at the very least uncomfortable for me. And some of the other people out there who are, I am certain, not at all, at all, at all trying to understand what Jesus is saying in truth and in faith, not at all, things are going pretty well for them. I mean, they, they seem to be having it all line up. And I mean, not, not everything. I mean, they've got some good and some bad, but that's kind of like my life too. There, there doesn't really seem to be much discernible difference between the people of God and the people who have nothing to do with them at all. Why is that? How can that be if Jesus is king and he's reigning? Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We'll pause there for a minute to make sure that we understand the details so far. Just like we saw last week, Jesus is speaking in parables, and he's speaking to the crowds like that, and then even the same as last week, a little bit later, he comes aside, as we'll see, to his disciples and gives them some explanation. Matthew tells us in verse 34 that he did this all the time. Of course, not meaning that every single thing that he said was in a parable, but that whenever he spoke to the crowds, he always threw in a parable or two. This was his usual practice. That was his methodology, and that was right in line with how the Old Testament spoke of and, and depicted God's prophetic preachers, using parables to bring out things that were hidden, always there, but hidden in the past about the kingdom, to bring them out and put them right in front of people. But as we read through the Old Testament, they were largely misunderstood then, and Jesus is right in line with that now. This is what he did, he taught in parables. And here he puts before the people a parable about weeds. 
that got into this man's field by an enemy over-sowing them, re-sowing them. And that was a common enough occurrence that it is a specific crime in Roman law. So this, this happened from time to time, and it, was a very, it happened because it was really effective. It was a great way to destroy a crop and really even to ruin an entire field. So they did this, and they would often use this, this particular plant. And the word for weed there is actually not a generic word. It's a specific word about a specific plant that looks a lot like wheat. And as it grows up, it looks like wheat, and you can't tell till it comes time to kind of blossom and the kernels would grow, and then you can recognize, ah, there's the difference which is what verse 26 is getting at. It took them some time to identify it. And by that point, however, the, the root system of the plants are all woven together, and to tear up one would risk tearing up the other also. So in this story, the farmer decides to just wait, to leave it be for a time. Verses 31 and 33 then are two more parables, very similar to each other and related to this weed, weed parable. A small mustard seed sown in a field, a teeny tiny little seed there. But if you just wait, leave it be for a time, something you can barely see will grow to be five, ten feet tall. It'll become a very great tree by agricultural plant standards. It's something that you, you plant in the field, and by comparison, everything else that grows in the field, it's a great big old tree, very unique. And also unique for an agricultural plant the birds of the air will come and make nests in its branches. That's not common. Massive from tiny. Like a little bit of leaven ends up having a massive effect on all this flour. In their day, they wouldn't have used yeast properly. They would have used what we might call starter, like a little bit of leavened dough placed in amongst all this Flour, and it is a lot of flour. If you convert the measurements to a modern standard, it's about 60 pounds of flour. So if you think of a usual five-pound bag, that's 12 bags of flour. That's a lot of flour, which would be a ginormous rising ball of dough and a lot of bread. Surely he exaggerates that to make a point. If you just leave it for a time and wait, the whole massive thing gets changed what you couldn't even see before because it was hidden down there out of sight, makes something massive and fruitful. So, let's pick up again reading in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who has sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
A sudden change from speaking to the general public now to talking to his disciples who press in and ask him for help. What do you mean by that parable of the weeds? And so Jesus gives a few pointers that we can all clearly see there. This is that. He's kind of helping them work it through. You've got good seed, the children of the kingdom, Christians, disciples, all among, right next to, intertwined with bad seed, weeds, sons of the evil one, non-Christians, in other words. And one thing that's often missed here, verse 38, the field is the world, explicitly. That's what it says. It's not the church. This parable is not about weeds inside the church community, which is for sure a problem, and there are other places that talk about that, and you can think of you know, wolves in among sheep, and there's lots of places that's a big problem. That's just not what he's talking about here. This parable is about something else. It's about the, the people of God, two types of people, the people of God and the non-Christian world all right in amongst one another. Jesus put them there, and makes a determination to leave them there, all mixed in together. To leave it that way for a time until the day of judgment. That's the parable of the weeds. Told in conjunction with the other two parables that are shorter, obviously, but, but are related. And it's primarily from the two shorter parables that we get the first observation. So here it is. First observation. The kingdom starts small, grows slowly, and yet ends up a massive blessing. The kingdom starts small, grows slowly, and yet ends up a massive blessing. That's the basic point of both the mustard seed and the leaven hidden in amongst the flower. Mustard seed is so small, the leaven, by comparison, would be visible if it wasn't hidden. So these two things that you can't see, they have their, their natural kind of course of action kind of activated and so all you have to do is just wait. Just leave it be and slowly, slowly, slowly something happens. Little bit by little bit expansion, growth until in the end you finally get something massive. That's obvious from the examples given. But, this is one of the ways we talked about this last week, we often miss the the hiddenness part of these parables because we've heard them so many times, heard them interpreted so many times. But when they're first coming into the, into the context and to the audience that first hear it, it is not at all obvious to them that that's how the kingdom of God should work. It's not at all obvious. They all expected, his opponents and his friends alike, all expected that the kingdom of God, when it came, would come big and bold like a thunderclap. And there would be clear and visible judgment and cleansing of the world. It would not come small and become massive. It would come, it would come massive. And there would be great big glory and great big power of God bringing in all the blessing that he promised and getting rid of all the evil like he'd promised. That was what everybody thought and what everybody was expecting. Think, for instance, back in chapter 11, this is the exact question that John the Baptist was asking. He was wrestling with this very thing, you recall. We saw him in prison as he's, as he's there kind of, I, I announced, and I certainly believe that you are the king and that you're bringing the kingdom, but here I am in prison suffering under this evil man, and what's the deal? And this has come up several times in this gospel because it was a, a serious problem. 
hard to connect the dots there. If the kingdom is here, this is what's going on is very counterintuitive, very hard to understand. That, that this would happen in this way, the king of glory would come and would be so patient in getting the fullness of his glory right now. How can he not be like that? Hard for them, and still hard for us to hear with understanding now. We, there's a lot more happened, and we certainly now have a better understanding of the basic structure of the two comings of Jesus. His first coming and, and looking forward now to his second coming. So we tend to un- understand that, but we also still want, expect far more by way of change and growth than we see happening. In everything around us, individually and in the wider culture and in the wider community, I, I think most of us, if we're honest, are looking for more Christian impact, more deeper godly character, more maturity, more evangelistic success, more people becoming Christians. I've heard people say, use this phrase, it must be written somewhere because I've heard it so often, that they want to be part of a prevailing church. Maybe you've heard that phrase. A prevailing church. That is a church that is fighting and prevailing, which means winning in the world. Fighting and prevailing and winning, advancing godly standards, helping them prevail in the public life, winning people to Christ. I've heard people say that. I've also heard people say, hey, you know what? Living things grow, always. So if this church, this movement, you, me, if, if, if there's life in this, it's going to be growing. Getting bigger, better, and stronger. It's, I mean, come on, it's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym three times a week, week after week, month after month, year after year, and look exactly the same. If you're actually going to the gym and actually doing the lifting of any weights or the working on any, you're going to be different. Living things change. They, they get better. They advance. They grow. They prevail. We want to see more of that and, and, and see more of that around us, in, in the culture around us, in the people around us, in the church community around us. The kingdom should be, would be, must be more of a big deal, more of a success if it is in fact here. It's got to be bigger and better and stronger and, and just more better. And it's a little bit frustrating when it doesn't appear to be so. And maybe a little bit embarrassing when we talk to our friends who aren't Christians and they say, you got this nice thing going on over there, but I mean, if it helps you, great. But it doesn't really seem to be like doing much. In fact, these people over here who don't have anything to do with that are actually seeming to be more better. And perhaps we're a little embarrassed by that or disappointed or maybe even unsettled because the question comes, yeah, what is, why is that? That's just looking out there. Do you ever look in here and ask that question? If Jesus is king and he's extending his rule in my life, there should be more to show for it in here. 
I mean, I, I come to church and I'm, I, I comb my hair and brush my teeth and I'm smiling. And, but I know the darkness in here and that doesn't seem good. There should be more better going on inside here. My, my growth in the Christian life is by fits and starts, and sometimes it seems like it actually goes backwards. I don't know. I, I want to be myself prevailing over sin. And I want to be more effective in ministry. And just more and better. But here I am. Here you are. Here we are. Here it is. Not that impressive. So often we, we look at all this and there is some, uh, some disconnect. It, I, I think I understand the kingdom and Jesus the King and the reign of, of God and the Holy Spirit, but it's not meeting the expectations that, that seem to be right and seem to be good. Okay. But are you hearing the message of these parables with understanding? I, we've got those experiences, we've got those expectations, we've got those, those perhaps disappointing realities, but do we look at these parables, hear what's here, regard it as true, and then orient ourselves to that, rather than to our perception of the outside world, my read of me. Do I read this and orient myself to that? Do you orient yourself to this? Conform your thoughts and your hopes and your expectations to this. The kingdom starts very small. In fact, initially, there was a single faithful disciple, and he died. Very small. But it grew from there. And, and other ones of us who are disciples, we, it starts very small even within each one of us. We, we're born as infants. Not that much, not that much changes in the second that you're born. You, you have a new, a new nature, but you're very much like you were the second before. It starts very small in each one of us. And grows very, very slowly. Very, very slowly. Very, very slowly. But remember this. You know, you know the, the line that with God a thousand years is like a day. That's true. And that's in a bunch of places in the Bible, but it would be helpful to kind of drop that in right here into our minds. In a way, I can speak in, in English to to people, and we can talk about things growing slowly, but in a way, that doesn't even make sense in God's vocabulary. What is slow to God? God is, is in no rush like we are. He, he, is, he is remarkably patient, and it's not a patience that is difficult for him. We, we sometimes sit, and we have to wait, and we, and we, you know, we sit in our hands, and we kind of like... Be patient, wait, be patient, you know, check, check, your, check your watch, check your phone, check, check the clock, check, check the email again. I, I'd have to be patient, I have to wait. That's not how God's patient. A 
thousand years, two, three, millennia. He'll take generations to move his people a few miles. I have a totally different timetable. Slow, it doesn't even actually compute. But from our perspective, it, it is slow, but we would be helped to think he's in no rush like we are. He doesn't need a result by Tuesday to justify his existence and, and keep his job. He's okay. He's in no rush. It's all in his hands. From our perspective, it is slow, almost imperceptible, but it is there, it is present, it is growing, and it becomes massive by the end. Massive in two particular ways. Look more closely at these two short parables again. The seed becomes a tree, and if he could have stopped right there if his point only was tiny becomes massive, that would have made the point. But he adds a little more. The birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. What's that about? It's an allusion to the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 4. If you know that chapter back there, this pagan king had a vision of himself and his kingdom, a great a great ruling and sheltering and protecting kingdom for all the other nations of the earth. The beasts of the field came and found shade under his branches and the birds of the air nested in them. But in his pride, his kingdom fell under judgment. So what's Jesus alluding to here? A theme that he's only just barely touching on. He gets elaborated on elsewhere comes up particularly at the, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew here, but there's, there's something that's touched on here. This kingdom, this kingdom of heaven starts small, grows slowly, but in the end will be the perfect shelter and blessing for all the nations of the earth. God's kingdom isn't just so small as to be for one ethnic people in Israel. It's the place where all the nations find their rest. Nesting in its branches, this kingdom stretches out to, grabs hold of, and includes and gives a home to every tongue and tribe and nation, far superior to what any other human kingdom can offer. This is home for all the creation. Now, it's, it's really early here, and so he doesn't say much about this, just hints at it. But this is, this is what Matthew ends his gospel on. Go into all the nations and make a disciple in every corner of the earth. It's, it's a hint at that. This is the place where all the creation is changed and matured and grown up to be good and useful like leaven changes the flower. It becomes massive in that it's, it's a place of shelter for all the peoples of the earth and it's a place where all the peoples of the earth get changed and matured and grown up. In other words, this kingdom does prevail. It does win. And it makes everything that comes to it changed for good, made useful. It, it expands and changes flour. You can't really take a teaspoon of flour and eat it, but you can take a slice or a loaf or a truckload of bread and eat that. It changes it and makes it useful. All the good that we long for actually happens in this kingdom. 
But in the meantime, we're not to despise the day of small things and don't despair at them. That's where we often get stuck. Yeah, that's good, but it's not now. Now is just the small things. It's still just a little seed. Martin Lloyd-Jones, British pastor, often, often, often encouraged, wrote, talked about, and exhorted the people that he had influence on to pray for revival, to pray for God to bring big things and, and to move in dramatic ways on earth. And he did that all the while pointing out to the same people that such times are very rare. Most of the time we live in the day of small things. So we have this pray for revival, but don't despise the, the common, normal, small thing. This is God's usual practice, and, and he tells us this here and actually hints at it in that this is how actually most things in our world grow, how we ourselves grow, very small, very imperceptible change, but it happens There's more happening in the kingdom than perhaps you realize. There is fruit to be seen. This is what Jesus said to John, right? When John came and asked him, he said, tell him to look around. There's more going on in the kingdom than you realize. It is growing. But it's growing slowly and it's small. So patience is required. Patience that is born from faith, realizing that God is not flustered or frustrated. It's all going according to his plan. Starts small, grows slowly, but ends up a massive blessing. That's the first point. Drawn primarily from the two small parables. So here's the second one that's related. Second observation. God's people now live amidst the evil world, but one day will be separated out to glory. God's people now live amidst the evil world, but one day will be separated out to glory. This is the point that rises out of the explanation that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 37. Christians are planted and grow up in the world, right there mixed in with the weeds. All the non-Christian peoples of the world are right in all among us, and we among them. If you're a person here who's not a Christian, you're hearing that and you're saying, I don't know how I feel about being called a weed or being said that I'm a, a, a son of the evil one. Well, please hear this, that Jesus is not trying to be insulting. He's trying to clarify what is almost always hidden. That You do, if you are not a follower of Jesus, unwittingly, by deception, you are being fooled and drawn into following the only other alternative, the prince of the power of the air, the Bible calls him Satan. There's a a power that he's exerting on you. And Jesus says this here in, in many other places. We saw the same similar thing last week. He says this because he wants to alert you. You've got somebody working on you to afflict you and hurt you, and it's not me. Be, be alerted to that. Not insulted, be alerted. You have an enemy, and it's not God. But there we are, we're all mixed in together here, and this is certainly 
the reality now, but it is not the reality all the way to the end. Consider verse 40. At the end, something else happens. The day of judgment. And again, he, he tells you this now. If, if you look at this and you say, I, I, I think he's talking about me because he's not talking about Christians. If, if you hear that, then realize why he tells you that, why he would say that, because he is kind. Anybody who alerts you to a coming danger while you still have opportunity to do something about it is being kind to you. And he's saying, there, there is a time. I, I leave it all mixed together now, but the fact that there is no judgment today is no proof that there is no judgment ever. It just is proof that I'm kind and patient. There is a day, he says it right clearly, there is a day coming when it all will be sorted out and separated and those who are not trusting in Jesus alone will be sent to the fire. He's talking about hell. That's real. It's not a euphemism for hard times. It's a real place of eternal punishment. For everyone who is not trusting in Christ and Christ alone, his payment on the cross, there was one who never sinned, only one who never caused sin, and that one was punished on the cross for sin anyway. To offer us a forgiveness and everyone who is not trusting in that payment for sin alone will one day at the end be cast into hell. That is a warning. Be, be aware of that. Now, well, you can still turn to this Jesus and say, God, help me. I need to be forgiven, and that's what he offers. Trust him now before the day of the end. So there, there's a message in that, but, but notice that actually his primary audience here, I mean, anybody who can read that can hear the message, but the primary audience that he's actually speaking to are his disciples. He's telling that to his disciples explaining it to those who already are his people, because this intermix, this living in the midst of all of them reality is unexpected and hard to comprehend. Unexpected because, like we already said, they, they thought it would, it would go down differently when the kingdom came. There would be a powerful cleansing right away. So this is not what was expected. But it's hard to comprehend and get your mind around and hard to cope with because it would be one thing if this coexistence was benign. If it was just, thinking of the first observation, be patient because things are a lot slower than expected, but they're going in the right direction and everything's going to be okay. If it was just waited out, that'd be one thing. Challenging, but it's not like that actually, is it? Because the fact that God has decided to leave it all mixed together here in the world. This decision to leave the sons of the evil one all around us, to grow us up among them and the world that they make, that decision means affliction and hardship and suffering and loss and pain for us, God's people. It means to look at what Jesus says they do, verse 41, it means to cause us to be exposed to that which causes sin and that which breaks God's law. 
to that which further causes the world to fall apart and further causes God to be overlooked and rejected and sinned against. This wrecks the world and tempts us and those that we love and it grieves our souls and is injurious to our lives and our welfare and that is all by God's choice, his decision. That can be hard to understand. I thought you loved us. Why are you doing it this way? Because this way means yuck for those that I thought you loved. And the yuck for us is perhaps exacerbated by the fact that sometimes like the psalmist in Psalm 73, we can stand over here and say, ah, oh, and they can look over there and say, what gives? Because these people over here are having a party. If you've not read Psalm 73, that's the first half of that psalm. It, it is the one who says, I have followed you, I've walked with you righteously, and then I look out at the world and I see people who do not give a rip and are having a great old time. How can that be? Well, Jesus doesn't exactly say what he's doing and why. There's only one line in the original telling of the, of the parable that gives us any kind of guidance at all, any kind of a hint. Verse 29, to separate the weeds and the wheat before the end would risk uprooting and ruining the crop. So somehow... He's hinting at the decision to leave it be all mixed together is for the sake of the fruitful crop. He does it this way, for the sake of the fruitful crop. That's all the guidance we get. But that does bring to mind, not from here, but it does bring to mind a few of God's purposes from elsewhere in the Bible. He's working out for our good and for his glory by leaving things as they are now for this time. First, I think from elsewhere in the Bible, we should consider the doctrine of common grace. Common grace. And the good that it brings to us. He's left us here in the world that they make. But you know, the world that they make is not all bad. Because of common grace. God has given much gracious blessing to all people, us and everyone else. Commonly, he gives wisdom and he gives skills and abilities. And that means that there is much good in the non-Christian world that we as people benefit from and are blessed by and are caused to return praise to God for because he's the one who gave it. For our good and for his glory, common grace makes a world that has medicine in it, that has scientific advancement, that has people who protect our lives. And I think, this is a bit of speculation here, but I think that not only does that create an environment for the next couple of things I'm going to talk about, a stable environment of good for the next couple of things, but I think that we're going to carry a whole bunch of that into the new heaven and the new earth with us. Sometime way, way, way back, some people lived in a town called Denim, which is either in France or Italy, I'm not sure. 
might be mispronouncing that. Somebody can correct me, I'm sure. They invented a fabric called denim. denim. We're going to carry that fabric with us, not just right now, but into the new heaven and the new earth. And I bet that most of those people did not know Jesus. And on and on and on. The blessings that God in common grace gives, the world that is made all around us, is a benefit to us now. It sustains us now, and we're going to hijack most of that stuff and take it with us to the glory of God for forever. Common grace. But also think about sanctifying grace. That often comes to us through our encounters with non-believers and the non-believing world that we live in. Think, for example, how 1 Peter 1 teaches that while on our way to the inheritance kept for us in heaven, there is an inheritance, Christian, kept for you, and it is in heaven. It is there waiting for you. But while on the way, for a little while, it is necessary for us to be grieved by various trials. That's Peter's language. If you want to think or listen more about that, that sermon's on our YouTube channel. You can go back and check that. But that's what Peter explicitly says. Now for a little while, it is necessary that we be grieved. Not just that we have trials, that we be grieved by the trials. Why? Well, perhaps you know where he goes with this. That our greater worth than gold faith may be grown up. Strengthened, widened, deepened, so that we'll see more of his worth and his beauty and his astonishing, amazing grace for us. We need to be grown and matured, and there's something about this fallen world and the weeds in it that is God's grace to us. Hard as that may be to understand, it is explicitly said. He leaves it for a time as it is because of the common grace in it and the sanctifying grace in it. And lastly, we also should be mindful of the saving grace at work here in it. All this time, as long as this time lasts, we must realize that God has an elect people. The Bible talks about this often. We saw it last week. A people to whom he has given the ability to know the secrets of the kingdom. That was in last week's passage. Those people are from every tongue and tribe and nation and era. And era. They weren't all born at the same time. And so there is a purpose of God in in letting things be as they are because he's got some mission that he is on and we called called with him into it to gather in all the people from every tongue and tribe and nation and era to gather them to this great growing tree. To call them to saving grace and saving repentance. Now, Now, see, the problem with the parable is that it's, again, it's static. If you look at the parable... Weeds never become wheat. That doesn't happen in the world. But what it's trying to illustrate, the spiritual reality, that happens all the time. In fact, every single stalk of wheat used to be a weed. And then God changed us and, and gave us a new creation. And so it can never happen in the parable, but it, it's the only way that it ever and always happens in the real world. God's about this mission pursuing a people all over the globe 
giving them new life and calling them into a new existence. And we, his people, all have a part in that as we are called to be laborers in this harvest also. We've talked about this before. This is for the good of the whole kingdom. It's for the growth of the kingdom, not just in its depth like sanctification, but in its, in its breadth, the numbers. He's growing the family. This is going on now. And, and setting our minds, I think, on these three varied types of grace can help us understand and, and, and get our minds around that why would you do it like this, God? Why would you, why would you cause us to sit in the spot where it is so hard? And, and I think his answers would rotate around because of common grace and because of sanctifying grace and because of saving grace. Good that I'm doing to you, my people, to the glory of my name. That's why. So set your minds on that. But lastly, what is explicitly mentioned here when we're struggling with hardship and pain from life in this world, when you're the psalmist in Psalm 73 and you're looking and then saying, like, this is hard, what gives? You have to do what the psalmist in Psalm 73 did. You have to take yourself in hand and take yourself into the presence of God and consider the end. Because our great problem in this spot, looking over there, is we're considering the now. And this now is hard, and that now seems great. And, and God essentially says, okay, what about the end? Where's this going? Consider their end and yours both. He is telling us about the terrible coming judgment, telling his disciples to encourage us in two ways. First, with the reassurance that no one gets away with anything. God is patient now, but not for forever. We may and should try to deal with the wrong that we find now. We, we sit in the middle of suffering now and we should, we should try to bring to light what is hidden. And we, we should fight against evil. We should attempt to, to address the problems of the world, but we will never get all of it. We will never even get much of it. But there is an assurance here that it all gets sorted out in the end. It's all interwoven and incredibly complex and who could separate it anyway? And God says, I can and I will. And it'll be perfect. No one gets away with anything. All that afflicts and all that harms and all that causes sin and destruction and evil, all attacks, all that's wrong, all is drastically dealt with and you, his people, will be vindicated. So be patient. There is a day coming when he will take out of the world all that is wrong and evil and the kingdom and the world will be one and the same and the kingdom will cover all of the earth as the water covers the sea. The new heaven and the new earth will be free of all evil and in it you will shine like the sun. That's the very last verse. That's where he ends. Do you hear that and hear it? Now, I don't know what now is like. Now may be full of grief and hardship, Light and momentary and passing. That's the truth. Hear it. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. 
That is glory, and that is certain to come, the fullness of the harvest of righteousness, all gathered into the kingdom, occupying all of the creation everywhere, free of all the weeds and all the evil and all the fallenness, shining like the sun. That'll happen. How do you know? The first fruits of the harvest already happened. Christ came out of the grave alive. That's how you know. The fullness of the harvest is coming. How do I know that? Because the first fruits have already come. That's how you know. The tomb was empty. It all comes back to the grave, and it was empty. And so yours will be too. You'll go into the ground, but you'll come up out of it glorious. That's the truth. But the one who has ears to hear, hear it. And rest in it. Rest in it. Believing. It starts small, grows slowly, and becomes massive and glorious, and you'll be with him in it. Let me pray. Father, help. Help us to see and to believe this, and I pray, help those who may at the moment be outside of it to come in. Call your people, Lord. Call us to yourself and give us rest in these truths. Thank you. Amen. Would you please stand with us? Um, There will be, at the end of the service, an elder up here if you would like to pray with someone this morning. So let's continue praising the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.